Episode 17 of the Brick and Mortar Reporter Podcast. Welcome to the Brick and Mortar Reporter Podcast, where we show you how to build your business brick by brick. Put on your hard hat and grab your tool belt because you are about to enter the construction zone. And now, here's your host, Christy Hostler. Hi there, localists. My name is Christy Hostler, and you're listening to the Brick and Mortar Reporter. And you're not going to be sorry that you tuned in to today's podcast because I have a exciting, exciting guest here. I have Rachel Solom, who is the owner of the Irving House at Harvard in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, Rachel has been involved in promoting and supporting local businesses in her area, also through the Cambridge Local First organization. And so local businesses and her business, Irving House at Harvard, is very near and dear to her heart. And she has many years of experience to share with us. And we want to hear all about her journey today. So welcome, Rachel. We're so glad to have you with us on the podcast today. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for coming. Now, I gave a little bit of a snippet about kind of a little bit about you, but it is definitely doesn't do justice to you as a whole person. So why don't you start by telling us a little bit about you um, personally or professionally or anything else that you think we need to know just to kind of get to know who you are. Okay, well, I'm, uh, let's see, born in 1955 in New York City and grew up in, in New York of uh, somewhat artistic people who never talked about money and never talked about okay. business. They, there was not an entrepreneur in the family. So wherever oh, wow. I got okay. this, I could not tell you. But <laughs> but I dropped out of high school and dropped out of college, and nothing was kind of working for me within the structures that I – and my family had a great deal of respect for academics, so it, clearly mm-hmm. um, I, I could have gone down that path very happily. But it, But I just wanted to be out in the world. So – I have kind of a scrappy collection of, of uh, experiences, and um, I have two children, and uh-huh. they are now grown up, and I'm a grandmother. Okay. Uh, and they're both local to me in Cambridge and Jamaica Plain, another section of the greater Boston area. It's a section Wonderful. of the city of Boston across the river. So I'm very lucky, and I spend a lot of time taking care of my, spending time with my grandchildren and giving my kids child care. Mm. And that's my latest diversion <laughs> from work, but that's just nice. Happily, I'm sure. Very, very happily. <laughs> uh, so that's one of the nice flexibilities of owning a business that, uh, that I'm sitting at the top of. I have two partners, one of whom I'm married to and the other. Okay. Uh, we've been in a partnership for 24 years, and it's very much like a marriage. They're silent partners. They've never been involved in the operation of the business. Um, but we all get along well and talk about capital improvements and Okay. The long-term planning of the business on a regular basis. And uh, so my background is that I've been in the Boston area for almost 40 years, came here wow. by chance, lived in Jamaica Plain, managed real estate there, and there was and owned a little store, consignment children's clothing store in Jamaica mm-hmm. Plain back in the 80s when my kids were little. And I was part of cooperative homeschooling and cooperative mm-hmm. childcare when they were younger. So just kind of, and volunteered in the schools when they did go to school. And so I never made a lot of money, but I always was involved in the community in a lot of ways. The store was very little, 600 square feet. Oh, wow. But it was very successful. And a friend of mine who made the banners that were our signs 
gave me a little motto that was our motto in that business and has been mine ever since. The sky's the limit. Which the sky's the limit. Kind of what you say to kids, you I know, as a that. cheerful yeah. little expression, and it's kind of stuck with me. And she's Excellent. stuck with me, too. She's been a friend. In fact, she's a designer. After she made the banner for our business, uh, my little business long ago, she more recently did the redesign of my main hotel. Oh, okay. Back in 2010. So that was the, she, she really gave a, a whole look to the place that we had not. Well, I'm sure she probably before. wanted wanted to update you so you could get rid of some of her first work. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We're always improving ourselves. That's it. That, and you too. know how it is. Your first things, you're like, oh, that's embarrassing. Sure. Get rid of that. That's terrible. Exactly. So I definitely understand that. So, um, so I kind of, you know, got into the hospitality business through happenstance, and it wasn't something I had imagined that I would do. Um, but this came to me as an opportunity, and I said, oh, that sounds exciting. And I jumped into it, and it's been very successful, and it's been a really nice vehicle for um, giving back to the community and taking leadership roles and working with a wide variety of people. Cambridge is a very lovely place to do business. The universities, the the cultural community, the restaurants, the shopping, all that stuff is you know makes it a wonderful destination. And working with the people who make that happen. It's a lot of fun, actually. Well, that's you know yeah. sometimes that's what it's all about when you have your own business is it's yeah. feeding feeding more than just the bottom line paycheck. It's you know feeding the soul as, as well. Oh so. yeah. yeah. Now, can you give us a little um, for those that aren't familiar with the Irving House at Harvard? Can you just give us a little bit of overview of what your business actually is? I call it a guest house, which means a that house. it's okay. a very large bed and breakfast. It's got 44 rooms, so it's very wow, <laughs> very large. <laughs> right, and it's it's kind of an odd duck in the hospitality world because if you're going to mm-hmm. build a property that big, you would probably have more gathering rooms. You know, real dining, real mm-hmm. kitchen, which we don't have. We kind of put that together. So we can offer breakfast and afternoon tea, but it's in the basement and we don't have a full kitchen. So it's a guest house in the sense that it has no meeting rooms either. And I, you know, okay. So it's not an inn. I got So it's you. too big for a bed and breakfast in the traditional sense that people know to expect. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have the full facilities of an inn, but we okay. provide rooms to the traveling public. So it's a very, very, very simple place. But it's also, you know. Clean and lovely and cheerful and all that. It's just very basic. And beautiful. It's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place. Oh, you've looked at the website? Yes, I did. Oh, and right. it looks like you've done a lot with it, you know, over the yeah, years. Yeah, it's a very so, – so imagine this, 44-room place. It was built as a two-family house. Oh, wow. <laughs> that That is huge. And about what year was it built? 1893. 1893. So that was huge by standards back then, wasn't well, it? It was not as big no? then as, wow. it, you know, as it is oh, now. Oh, it's expanded. I got so you. So it was wow. converted. It was built in 1893. It was converted from a two-family house with probably 12 rooms on each side. So I think it was 24 rooms total into a 44-room lodging house in 1927. Wow. Very likely for accommodating Harvard students because that's okay. what was happening on that street at that time. Mm, and okay. Uh, the Harvard 
population was expanding greatly and they didn't have enough dormitories and anybody who, you know, I mean, everyone was in the business of accommodating. The way the, you know, the classic little old lady would, would take care of herself in her golden years was that she had this house where she'd raise her family and she'd rent out rooms, right? right? And, and boarding houses provided meals. But when they did this conversion from the two-family house into a 44-room lodging house, they did not have to provide any food. It was a rooming house, not a boarding house, because Irving Street is within hearing of the dinner bell at Memorial Hall on the Harvard campus. Oh, okay. So, you know, people could live on Irving Street and know when lunch and dinner, breakfast, lunch, and dinner were, (laughs) and that made it a very popular street. I see. So it's very close to the Harvard Yard, to the to Memorial Hall, and uh, makes it a very lovely location for us to accommodate people. But it doesn't wow. have a kitchen. It has had a lot of little tiny rooms. We've actually converted quite a few of those rooms and moved things around and added onto the fourth floor. And mm-hmm. so um, it was the outside shell of it is pretty much as we found it, except a little more. Okay. But it it was a very, very gracious house, according to the description I read in the paper, the Mm -hmm. Cambridge Tribune of 1893. Wow. They actually had an etching of it. Unbelievable. I used to have a little article about every house that was getting finished in the city of Cambridge. Incredible. So you've, but you've got that piece of history, though. I mean, that's yeah. that's kind of, um, you know, you you feel probably a little bit differently about that, knowing that there is that, you know, that historical context as well, right. you know, With what you're doing, right? Right. So it's been it's so it's in a great location, but it's very simple, and so, and we do have some of those little tiny rooms that were uh, for a single Harvard student, and it's it's like a monk cell, you know, a single room. Okay. And the room is twice the width of the bed, and you can have a little tiny oh, yeah. desk in there. You know, seventy-five square feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have we have a few of those left. Nobody would build those now, but uh, right, it's a quirky exactly. building, and there's baths across the hall. But we've all cr- created a lot of private baths as well. So, it's a very bi- it's a white elephant. <laughs> what do you do with this gotcha. building? Gotcha. Doesn't fit in any kind of mold or any textbook example right, of it, what it, any classification should be. It is unique. Absolutely. Definitely. Well, I'm sure that's part of its charm as well. Mm-hmm. So now, Rachel, tell us at what point um, in your life you decided you wanted to become an entrepreneur. I know you said you started out with a little, you know, consignment shop. And was that what kind of lit the fire for becoming an entrepreneur or what was it? Well, as I said, I didn't. I haven't really worked well within the structures that I grew up in, so I didn't really know. I mean, I certainly had jobs for bosses mm-hmm. inside of organizations. I know how to do that, and I've actually mm-hmm. built an organization that's quite sustainable, so it's not like I'm averse to organizations, but there was something, even when I was, you know, being a tutor for the city of New York or working for the post office, I did all these things. <laughs> <laughs> and I did them well. I did them right, well. Right, right. I didn't quit. I worked hard, you know. I talked to my boss about things I was concerned about. But I never thought it was what I wanted to do. So I guess I was, you know, pretty young when I decided that I would not work for other people. But there was a moment, and it was that I owned that little consignment store in a partnership. And uh-huh. my partner and I were not getting along well. She had different plans for the business than I did. And she wanted to get out of it, she said. And oh. so I was going to buy it from her. And at the moment that we were agreeing on the price, 
she changed her mind and ended mm-hmm. up wanting to buy it from me. At which point I said, you know what, this business is too small to have two people fighting in it. I'm not going to fight anymore. Have it. So I suddenly, after like six months of planning to buy and expand the business, uh-huh. was finding myself with a chunk of money and no no occupation. Oh, wow. So And I had two kids to support. I was a single parent at the time. And um, mm-hmm. the first thing that occurred to me was that I would help, I, I would start a business. The uh-huh. idea of putting together some kind of resume of my volunteer activities and my, I don't have any professionals. I don't have any academic credentials. <laughs> I got nothing, right? Much easier to start a business than to try to convince someone to hire me is what I figured. Right. And that that was kind of an, you know, the burning light that that I guess was a moment when I knew it. Right. And And, you know, I think that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs kind of, fit in that the mold is that they don't fit into all this corporate mold easily, you know, and it's right. just something it's kind of like an ill-fitting outfit or something like that. It just never really works, although you could do it and you can make it work, but it just doesn't get you up in the morning whenever you're going through the motions of a job that you really, you know, aren't sold on. So I definitely understand that that coming from that place of mm-hmm. not really being the rebel, but just being like, there is something else, you know, and I'll do better for myself than I will for somebody else. So when you took off and started your business or you thought that this is what I want to do, what was the biggest fear you had? Um, the store had been a very small operation. I think it never made more than 120000 a year to share between two partners, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a little tiny place. And, um, the size of the money that was involved, the amount of money. Oh, well, so I had to do a bunch of things. I had to, re- I had to put together a lot more money. A friend of mine uh-huh. just said, oh, just keep adding zeros to the checks. <laughs> You'll get used to it. You'll get used to it. Um, I wish it was that easy. Just I know. Wow. <laughs> um, but I had to build. So we bought a hotel, Irving House, that had existed since 1945. Mm-hmm. But... It needed a huge amount of attention. It needed physical attention to the building. It needed commercial development. They didn't take reservations. They didn't take credit cards. Their office closed at 9 o'clock at night. The only people who were staying there were people who had known about it before. So Mm -hmm. from years ago when it was in its prime, it had not been touched by a paintbrush. or (laughs) The first time I washed the curtains the summer, we got it in July, and um, I wanted to, you know, Chris everything up. And I said, oh, these curtains, they fell apart in the in the dryer. They were held together with dust. It was so scary. And I had rented these rooms, and I was going to hang the curtains in them. And I pulled them out of the dryer, and they're just a tangle of broken up threads. <laughs> oh, my God, it was so scary. So there was a time when I had, you know, the telephone on my, my shoulder while I was at the sewing machine for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to make sure that 44 rooms had curtains in their windows. But it was crazier than that. There was loads and loads of crazy stuff. So it was a lot of money. I had to engage in a partnership with these two men who are old friends, but I'd never done business with them before. So I had Mm -hmm. to learn the ins and outs of legally and, and temperamentally and in our management styles and everything. I had to figure that out. I had two adolescent kids. Oh, yeah. And a construction project 
rent, you know, renovating this house while it was occupied. We bought a, I mean, we bought an operating concern, and there were guests right. there all the time. So wow. that just navigating that renovation while you you stay open for business is enough, but add all those other things on, and I can right. imagine just just feeling overwhelmed. Oh yeah, and I had to move that spring. <laughs> and I had nowhere to go. Why not have another life? So event, I lived right? at the hotel. I basically lived and breathed it, which was okay. We had we made our kitchen because there's right there's no kitchen in the house. Think about that. I had a little cube refrigerator and a microwave oven, and used the bathroom sink. That was there it. you go. That was That's it in the need. first what more six you... months of our. <laughs> wow, that was crazy. So, um, I guess I was. A young and crazy. If I, I mean, I'm glad it's turned out so well, but mm-hmm. I, there was a lot happening at the beginning for quite a while. But also pretty, I was going to say probably pretty exciting and never a dull moment and kind of, you know, feeds that adrenaline rush of everyday craziness going on, yeah. you know. Some some people are addicted to that, so I'm not saying you are, <laughs> oh, but no. it's, it's exciting. <laughs> definitely it's definitely exciting. Right. But I enjoy the calm as well. <laughs> you know, so what, was, you know what was really, really gratifying? I'll never forget this sense of those first days and weeks and months and years that we had guests who were coming back, you know, having come for years and years. In fact, the morning, mm-hmm. so we passed papers on a Thursday. There's all the stuff at the lawyer's office. And then that night I had to get the keys and whatever instructions I had. I'd never, I'd never stayed in a hotel before, okay? Oh, and God. the woman who sold it to us is the daughter of the family who ran it for 45 years. And she invited me over, and we opened a bottle of sherry. She opened a bottle of sherry, and we drank. And she was handing me over the keys and the soap and the registration cards for the guests at the family house about two blocks away, which is where the office had been. So there was no office on the premises. So I had to immediately create an office on day one. And we didn't get the name. We got the two telephone numbers. And, you know, so it was craziness. But there were guests in-house. And even before we had a telephone, before we had anything, she had not even told the staff she was selling it to us. Oh no! So it's she didn't like it, really... almost like a middle of the night kind yeah, of takeover yeah. kind she of thing. She couldn't. She couldn't bring herself to do it. I mean, the staff had been there for many, many years. But anyway, so it was just this crazy, crazy moment. But the first guests who checked out were this lovely couple who were bringing their 19-year-old daughter to look at colleges. Mm-hmm. They're from Puerto Rico, and they said, "We got married." in the chapel at Harvard, and we stayed here on our honeymoon, and we're bringing our daughter back (laughs) 25 years later. (laughs) Wow. They're bringing their daughter back to see the place that they'd stayed in, and they were so happy. They had such a great stay, and I looked at the condition of this house. I mean, I was looking at this building just horrified about what, what it looked like and what I was facing for work, and they didn't see that. They saw the hospitality of the people who had run it for all that time. That's unbelievable. And it does change people's perspective, doesn't it? it How they're yeah, treated and that kind of thing. Yeah. That's, that's, and that, that's I kept getting that kind of, that was the first one, that was the most memorable, but I kept getting that over and over again. Hmm. And it was very gratifying. It was very nice to so know. So you, you knew that this place obviously already had a loyal following and it meant something to these people. Yeah that we're staying. So, you know, those are those are good feelings to keep just adding to the memories and the next day gets better and then people come and see what you've done and right. later on just get to really marvel at the transformation, so to speak. Exactly. 
Now, let me ask you this. Did you have any sort of business coach or mentor or anything to kind of help you through this, um, like, hello, I've never stayed in a hotel and now I own one kind of <laughs> situation? <laughs> well, see, um, no, I never had an official one, but I have taken lessons from everybody. I, My two partners, certainly, um, were learning business the way we now run it as much as I was, but they had more experience in investing and what makes things successful and how you structure you know, reports that mm-hmm. we would need and dealing with attorneys and accountants. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think the biggest thing about running a business, you know, entrepreneurs are so exciting because they don't fit in the molds and all that stuff. Every business needs the same three things. Always, Tell me what those always, are. always. You always need to do accounting. Mm-hmm. You very likely need to deal with employees. And you mm-hmm. always need to market. You have to know your market. Ah. It doesn't matter what the business is. And if you don't do those things well, you're not going to survive one way or another. Or you're going to, you know, make a lot of people miserable for a long time. (laughs) And yourself probably. And yourself, yes. Definitely yourself included. So, um, and I knew that from running a small business. And it was actually kind of amazing to me to find how how many people who are in business don't pay attention, especially to accounting Mm -hmm. or to treating their employees well or having a sustainable way of dealing, you know, knowing, having a structure of accepting employee, you know, job mm-hmm. descriptions and proper compensation and all that stuff. So yeah. I didn't know any of that, but I, but I would learn from, I would, you know, the nice thing about not caring about school is that the world is your school and you just right. keep on paying attention. That's true. So that's kind of how I was and have been and I hope continue to be. Yeah, well, you know, we we get people in our lives that, you know, we learn. I tend yeah. to say you can learn from everyone. And sometimes right. it's not always learning how to do things. Sometimes it's learning how not to do things as right. well. So I just choose to take those lessons on both sides of that and learn from everyone. So Exactly. Now, um, whenever you kind of got your business started and you, you had the changing of hands and that sort of thing, um, did you have any um, – sort of strategy for trans I know it was not a great situation to trans transition kind of in the middle of the night from one owner to another but how did you kind of transition the business and and the employees and all that did you have a specific strategy laid out or did you just No, I just winged it. Um winged it. <laughs> really seriously. Um there were five employees there when we first started mm-hmm. and I talked with all of them and two people who ran the desk were at the desk. I think a third one I just didn't stay. But anyway, there were two people who who stayed working for me for quite some time and are really, mm-hmm. really lovely people. Um, one of them was my assistant manager, another was a night manager, and they, they taught me everything. I just said, oh, I need to learn everything from you. And then there were three housekeepers, um, oh one of which one of whom was a resident manager in the house for a while, and he continued living in the house um, for I don't know, three years maybe afterwards. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and he and he worked in the evenings at the desk too, because one of the first things I had to do was extend the the desk hours. Can you imagine a hotel closing oh. at nine o'clock at night? <laughs> yeah, really. Crazy, okay. and especially because uh, Logan Airport is where people are coming in. You know, from the from right, yeah, all well, all over the world, but certainly from Europe as a first stop, right? And those flights sometimes get in late at night into the evenings anyway so 
So people couldn't check in. Nothing could go on after 9 o'clock. The office closed. They wouldn't answer the phone. Wow. Imagine that. Shut up tighter than a drum or whatever. Well, it was the family's home, you know. So anyway, it was a crazy situation. And so I didn't really have any guidance, but, but I was facing... I mean, I'm looking at this through the gauzy, lovely haze of 24 years, but I do remember that I pretty much was, you know, working 6 a.m. till 2 a.m. Mm-hmm. every day for right. months and months and months and months and months. Wow. And, uh, you know, I had to shop for the breakfast. We started serving breakfast probably within a month of, and there was no kitchen facilities, right? And I, oh, yeah. I was sleeping in the front office, which was one of the rooms we had converted <laughs> and cut a hole in the wall to make a window. <laughs> Oh my God, it was crazy. Yeah, it sounds. I was going to say. I mean, it's one of those things that makes for a great story. Now like, <laughs> yes, it does. You know, I really should just, write I it mean, down. Exactly. One of those things when you think, like, looking back now, you're thinking, how did I ever go through with this? Yeah. I mean, it indeed. just seems like you, you know, were you blinded with all this? But look at it all this time later. No, everything seems so calm and normal now. Yeah. It's <laughs> you a great forget. success, and I have two more properties to add to that collection of of my friendly See? accommodations in the heart of Cambridge. That's that's so. just growth right there. That's you obviously did exactly. something right and it grew. So now you are involved, like we said, with Cambridge Local First. And so um can you kind of tell us a little bit about what not just what local resources were available to you or are are available there in Cambridge, but can you kind of help maybe any small business owner that might be looking for resources within their local community and steer us in the direction of what would kind of give them the biggest bang for their buck? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, in Cambridge, there are three big ones. In addition, well, in addition to the city's economic development department, which is a fairly robust little group inside of community development. So economic development helps business associations get started. There are nine areas of Cambridge and Four of them have very active business associations because they're commercial centers. Harvard Square Business Association is one of the strongest. Central Square and Kendall Square and Inman Square all have business because they're good commercial centers too. So Mm -hmm. the the business associations do have a lot of local businesses participating. They're very longstanding in their independence and all that. And some – and – a bis- an association of any kind, a neighborhood association, mm-hmm. uh, the PTA, those associations um, help the the government do its work better because they organize mm-hmm. individuals into a, you know to a representative body. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the the local business associations uh, are very useful and great. Cambridge Local First is citywide. The other thing about okay. the Local the associations that are specific to neighborhoods of the city is that they mm-hmm. will include larger companies too. Right, so, because they're in that neighborhood. In that, it's right. more of a geographic. Right, and in our case, like Kendall Square, you have Microsoft and Google, and in Central Square, you have Novartis, uh-huh. and you have some pretty big companies in those right. squares. Harvard University and Harvard Square. So right. you know, it's kind of different um, when you're dealing with littler, smaller, you know, wholly owned independent businesses. So then the Chamber of Commerce, 
has about 1,500 members, and it is citywide, and it's a very strong, you know, I've been a member of the chamber and sat on the board for quite a while, and the Chamber of Commerce can be extremely useful. In fact, I joined the chamber probably within three or four years, and I was, I do not consider myself someone who would have joined a group of people. Imagine that. Now I join them all. <laughs> but back in the day, it was just the kind of thing I thought, oh, that's an old boys network. That's just, you know, I, right. I don't have time for that stuff. And, you know, I, I finally pulled my head out of my business and started looking around the community and said, hmm, <laughs> maybe I maybe. should get to know these guys better. <laughs> and it's been very helpful because I learned about what's going on around town. It's very important to to find out who the players are and what property is changing hands and just to be aware and it's to see and be seen. So mm-hmm. depending on your business, you may want to do more or less of that. But in the hospitality business, I want to be part of the cultural institutions and the restaurants mm-hmm. and the shopping. Everything that draws people to Cambridge, I need to know about all the theater stuff going on, you know, all of it that makes it the wonderful, rich community it is. So it's part of my business to be involved in all these other businesses. So mm-hmm. business associations in Cambridge, I would say, are very robust. The Chamber, okay. Cambridge Local First, represent all businesses, you know, the Chamber of mm-hmm. Businesses of all sizes. Cambridge Local First has 350 locally owned independent business members. Wonderful. And so it's a pretty strong organization, too, although quite a bit smaller than the Chamber. Right, right. Um, but but still very, very focused on that local, that local yes, mission. It is which a citywide is, representative is, for local independent businesses. And we have a fairly strong and growing partnership with the city. And it's very nice to have that, you know, kind of support. Well, I was going to say, it gives a little bit of structure to the support. And, um, you know, some businesses or or these associations, I should say, all across the country vary in the amount of activity and effectiveness they have. Mm -hmm. And sometimes... You know, all it might take to actually get to the tipping point with some of these organizations is getting a very handful of key local business owners that take the ball and run with it and get involved. And suddenly, oh, now you have a very uh, active group for Main Street businesses mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But, you know, it you can't despair because your your local business organization might not be all that some other cities is, you know. Well, it it just comes out of people getting together. I mean, this was two, it turns out um, the guy who's really the, who's responsible for founding it is Laurie Hamill, and he has done Sustainable Business Network, which used to be Businesses for Social Responsibility back in the 80s and 90s. When I was first starting Irving House, I knew of that and joined it for a little while. But Sustainable Business Network has actually started local first in the New England area and in mm-hmm. in eastern Massachusetts it's directly responsible for Somerville Local First and in Brookline, Jamaica Plain, Watertown, Belmont. They're all local business organizations coming out of in you know, operating mm-hmm. in those cities. And it's really good, you know, we can do things collaboratively and we know the farmers markets and we you uh. know are are in, engaged at at the state level in government as well because we have a, an organization of businesses who, where our voices can be heard, our mm-hmm. own voices, separate from the bigger companies. Yeah, and, that advocate, advocacy-type yeah. role helps. So definitely. it just took, you know, two – well, one of the other – so Lori Hamill has had, you know, very strong voice. His businesses are not in Cambridge, but but he lives in Cambridge and he cares about it, and that's why it's, that's why he started Cambridge Local mm. First before any of the others. 
Um, but the other, one of the other ones, my co-chair, Frank Kramer, used to own Harvard Bookstore, and that was um, his his angle on local independent, the strength of local independent businesses came from being in the bookstore community, which has been oh. hit so hard by... Absolutely. You know, all the, well, a lot of electronic things. and well, back in the day, it was like B. Dalton and <laughs> and Borders yeah. and then you know Barnes and Noble, but <laughs> that, now it's Amazon. Sure, all of that stuff. And they have been very, very organized over the years to save themselves. Mm, <laughs> and and I think that that the organization of locally owned independent what is it called? Books. Uh, Gosh, I've forgotten the name of the organization of booksellers, but they're specifically, you know, for local independents across mm. the country. I see. I, I, yeah, I think I've been exposed to something like that, the independent booksellers or yeah. some type of yeah. organization National for that. Yeah, and there's not – I was going to say there's not a huge amount of those all across the country well, either. Well, actually, when you the think ones about who are doing well, and I think this has to do with them being in touch with each other and sharing their best practices <laughs> – is, um, are doing quite well, and and I'd say Harvard Bookstore is, is an example. I mean, it's sitting in a you know really lovely spot there, but um, there are a lot of bookstores around the country doing very well, and and they have they have that community support. I mean, it's sure. those those communities would be rioting in the streets if those bookstores went away, right, you know, because right. it's a kind of a more than more than just a bookstore. It's sort of a social hub and exactly. and that sort of thing exactly. too, kind of building the fabric of those communities. Yeah. So. So, um, so they, you know, it just took a two or three people just saying we should start this, and right. and then six months later, I, you know, they had grown to probably thirty members by the time I joined, wow, and now okay. we're at three hundred and fifty. But it doesn't take long, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, and that's the thing that that can be replicated in any community that, that it needs can. To now, support. one of the things I found, uh, I think it's Concord. We had a, a conference out there in their gorgeous library. The town of Concord has a chamber of commerce, and their chamber of commerce is all locally owned independent businesses because there are no other businesses of any size in Concord. In, oh, so the okay. chamber serves that purpose, and that's that's perfectly fine. That's you know, mm-hmm. and that that works out really well. And I'm sure it works out in quite a few um, communities where there are no other. Yeah, there are some. There are some areas that are more restrictive as far as you know what types of businesses come in. So I'm sure it changes from time to time. But now, as you look back over your kind of business career and experience, can you think of any specific failure that you've had along the way that might be a lesson for some other entrepreneurs to maybe keep them from having to go down the same road you did? <laughs> Well, I know there's something I'm really bad at, and I that I've kind of <laughs> skirted. I'm not, there are a couple things I'm not good at, but there's one that I've that I've kind of lucked out on, and I it is that I don't know how to read people well enough to hire well. Oh. And oh, where I have okay. lucked out in hiring people and kept them, I have made them. I've figured out who's good at hiring or and managing people too. Okay. And I've delegated more of the hiring to my managers, mm. um, and that's. Or at least I consult with them a lot mm-hmm. because, you know, you just want to get the right people in the job. And, Absolutely. And in our business, it's the people who are the, the lowest on the totem pole. And it's not that big a business. But, then you know, the ones who are hired to do the hardest work, who are mm-hmm. kind of intimately connected with our guests in the sense that they're, you know, housekeepers or in their room. 
right, they're every day dealing with their private stuff and not touching it and making sure all that's, you know, all that has mm-hmm. got to be, you know, unquestionably good. Right. And these people are immigrants and don't speak English, and we have to tell, you know, you say to them, we want the floors clean enough that your children would eat, could eat off of them. Mm-hmm. You know, when we say, this is how you tuck this in, and this is all the things you must check and make sure the clock radio and the light and, you know, the window and all these things are in order. And it's a, it's a lot to teach mm-hmm. and, and do. And I don't, you know, in hospital, and that's true at the front desk. I mean, we have personal information about guests, and we get packages from them and all these things. So my my... The staff at a hotel, because you're traveling and you're feeling vulnerable, and these are the people taking care of you. They're my front line, and they are, you know, more than the managers interacting with my customers. Really? So it's not like manufacturing where they're behind the scenes. Yeah, <laughs> my guys are right out there, and that's true in any hotel, right? Um, so hiring the right people is is really important, really important. And, it um, is, and. And that I was going to say, I, I've heard a couple other small business owners that I've talked to talk about that that's something that they have really had a pretty steep learning curve with because it is, I mean, and, and I will tell you, it is hard to figure out the difference. I mean, you, people portray one thing when you interview them and when you talk to them, and then when they get on the job it's like you see a completely different person and you're thinking, who is this person? Because right. I never would have hired them. Right. Where did they come right. from? Exactly. And, and it's so difficult because you think, what what is it? Is it me? Is it them? Is it the job? Is it the, you know, what is the, what's, am I crazy? You know, yeah. you know, it's, it's, uh, well, you, and the only way you know you're not crazy is that you're, you're constantly uh, looking at your own history and looking around you, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and talking with other people and saying, "All right, did you did you see what I saw? Do you see what right. I see?" Right. Yeah. Um, and having people you trust over time mm-hmm. to be in that role with you. And I've I now, as I said, I did get lucky, and I have a, a really good management team I've worked with for years and years and years. One of whom is my daughter. I know her very well. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. She manages yeah. one of the other properties, but you know, I trust her judgment on. In fact, mm-hmm. she is a better. She's a better judge of people than I am, and always has been. Well, and you know, there are people that have that gift, and, and to be able to take that and say, you know what, we're going to go with your skill set and let your natural intuition, you know, help it, make up the gap that you might feel as a business owner. That's never a bad thing, no matter what the gap is. Well, that's yeah, that's the big lesson for me is that there are things I'm not good at. I'm not good at decorating rooms, and that was really easy to delegate too. I mean, I kind of know yeah. <laughs> what I like, but I don't know all of the pieces that make something look just stunningly beautiful instead of right. Just, Oh, this is nice. <laughs> you know whenever you've done it versus when a professional's done it, huh? Right. And the thing, you know, we don't have totally standard rooms, but we didn't want to have totally unique rooms because 44 mm-hmm. is a lot to make really unique. That is a lot of different We needed things. standardization of some kinds, you know, in paint colors and bedspreads. And, and so I tried to make yeah. the art different. Actually, the art is where, it's where I did have some fun. So... Um, you know, I still am using my judgment, but but Edie, this friend of mine who did the Sky for Limited and, and did the rooms a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, really has a much better sense of color and how it all should fit together. And it was really nice to get that kind of structure to tire it out. Oh, yeah, you can hire people to do your decorating. Absolutely, yeah. And really incorporate Let them be the design. experts in that, right. definitely. Exactly. Now, Rachel, for your um, the Irving House at Harvard right now, are there any 
specific marketing strategies that you're using to work? I know you said marketing is one of the three key things that no matter what industry you're in, a business owner has to pay attention to. So what's working for you right now? <laughs> I don't know. I know the game okay. that I have to play, the game uh-huh. that I have to play that is working is uh, third-party booking engines, which used to be you know, travel agents. But we didn't deal with travel agents that much. Um, I just got the word out to the offices at the universities, and they brought us enough business. I mean, we only have to fill 44 rooms, right? It's not like I've got 400 rooms. True. So so the Internet has been both a a blessing and a curse for us. Mm -hmm. And we have been on the Internet since 1994. And we, you know, care. I got the domain name really early and had a little simple website way back when. We get it about the Internet, but it is... Very difficult to play the game of the big third-party um, travel sites. And so, can can you explain, like, from a business owner's perspective, kind of how you have to interact and, and, so to speak, play the game with using the third-party booking type agencies, or I'm, I'm how does that to work? Whether I want to name names or not. <laughs> Yeah, well, whatever, yeah, and whatever, relationship, com- as you can whatever you're comfortable with. Yeah. I mean, you, I just, I just know that that somebody might not be using that method, even whether you know, depending on what their business is, and right. just to kind of give them a little guidance or a little, you know, as far as how you deal with that and what the structure is. Well, overall, I'd say that that different industries have di- have different marketing challenges, mm-hmm. and the internet is probably both a blessing and a curse to all of them. Uh-huh. And it is the biggest game for hospitality at this point. I think people can probably, well, I don't know, maybe maybe even going to a hardware store, but certainly finding a restaurant, you're going to go to the internet, you're going to go to your phone app, right? Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely. You're going to use the GPS in your car, you know, to find gas, okay. to find a, a car wash, or the restaurant where you're supposed to go with your friend, you know, things like that. So, mm-hmm. So the technology is going to send us to the places and and if you're not there you're not going to be found likely because mm-hmm. most of your unless you get almost all you get is foot traffic which is fine right but you need you probably need the broader you know the broader circle to to enhance your business so you're going to be in technology game land mm-hmm. and for us we need to be on the global distribution system the GDS and mm-hmm. people need to be able to book rooms from whatever site they find us on and we mm-hmm. have to be seen, you know, no matter what keyword they search, if they want to come to Harvard or MIT or Leslie or mm-hmm. BU, any of the universities, Harvard Square, American Repertory Theater, Fenway Park, all of these reasons That's that bring keyword. people to the city, add the name, the word hotel to it. Yeah. Right? And that's the search. So kayak and orbits and all these sites will aggregate information and and people are going to book directly and those are the kinds of bookings well there's lots of other technologies but that's kind of a model that's been that's the steadiest mm-hmm. model people are looking right. for hotel rooms they're going to go to those sites those sites have for quite a while quite a while in this industry is 5 or 6 years uh-huh. <laughs> taken like 30% of the of the hotel hotel room rate goes to the okay. site. So 30% of the cost, not 30% of the availability. No, no, no. We can room. give them whatever availability we have or feel like giving oh, okay. them. But once we give them a room, say, 
you know, the guest is going to pay $100 plus tax, and we're going to get $70. Gotcha. Plus the tax okay. on the $70. Wow. Not the tax on the $100. Oh, so the state yeah. of Massachusetts and the city of Cambridge are missing out on 30% of the revenues that comes through those channels. Oh, gotcha. That. That's a lot of money. Mm, yeah, that is a lot of money. <laughs> and it also makes it, it makes the guests want to book with those sites because they pay less room tax. Room tax is not the same as sales tax. It's 14.45% in Massachusetts. In any big tourist state like Florida, California, uh-huh. it's very high. It's 15, 16, right. 17%. It's very big because almost by definition, the people paying it are not voters. Right. <laughs> Great source of <laughs> revenue, right? Bring them on through. Exactly. exactly. So it's very, very cut. high. And <laughs> and so 30% of that on a few nights stay, you know, especially in a place like New York City, that's a lot of money. That's lunch and Absolutely. dinner, you know. So you want to book on those sites because you're going to only pay tax on 70% of the room rate instead of the whole thing. Most people don't do the math, but that's what happens. And they, they present it as such, too. You can see right on the Internet, if you book through this channel, you're going to pay you know, $105. And if you book through mm-hmm. that channel, you're going to pay 115 or something like that. Why, why a $10 difference? Well, they can't figure it out, but why wouldn't you choose a less expensive one? So yeah. anyway, it's a challenge. And so do you set your room prices and then yeah. know that, that, every, that whoever books is going to get that cut, or did, did they set the prices? Oh, we set the prices. You set the prices, mm-hmm. okay. So you, could, you, you have to do that taking into consideration. Well, we, um, oh, we can't. We have to charge the same price through that channel as we do ourselves. We can't. So, oh, okay. You can't undercut no, no, it or agreement. anything like no, that. No, absolutely not. Okay. No. And but then, then the price can fluctuate based on seasonality, availability, oh, yeah. and oh, all yeah. that we sort of thing. We set the rates, okay. and that changes by room type, by season, by a lot of things. Yes. And and how much maintenance is that to keep the keep updated with the room prices? Is that something? Well, it kinda... is now a practice of my staff to look at other people's room rates, which, of course, is something the Internet has made very easy. Absolutely (laughs) true. You can find out what your colleagues are doing right in Harvard Square for these dates. I mean, you could just mesmerize yourself with checking different dates and rates. It's crazy. (laughs) And we're there, too, you know. And you can see how everybody's been presented and if they're offering a special. And so we used to have to do what we called call-arounds. I have sheets of call-arounds from, like, 1997, right? We'd actually have to make phone calls to the hotels. It's charming. Isn't that great that that's a bygone thing? <laughs> well, as I said, blessing and a curse, right? Yes. So, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So I would imagine that even though you're using a lot of the third-party um, booking type things for, for initial marketing, that you probably try to have a significant amount of repeat business or re- we do. customer we retention. We do. Um, we have, what do you do for that? Because that means a higher profit margin for you, right? If they yeah. rebook through yeah. you rather than... Well, into the category of what I call goodwill, which includes mm-hmm. repeat guests, word-of-mouth guests, uh, guests from the university's offices. We have about mm-hmm. 500 offices we do business with repeatedly. And... Uh, People who've heard about us in the community, actually, we've had funny situations where a woman, you know, someone will come in with a guest, and she's having breakfast with a guest, but she's not staying there, and she will, my door is right by the breakfast room, so my door is open, and they, 
They come and they say, I have been sending people to you for the last 15 years. I just wanted to introduce myself. Everybody has been taken so well care of, you know. And I don't know who this person is, but she lives in, you know, I mean, this has happened more than once where I've had these people who just walk by and said, oh, Irving House, I'll send people there. But they don't actually come in until like five years into it or something. But the guests wow. are all happy, and they say, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> Thank you glad so that worked much. out for you, huh? <laughs> so you just never know. There's little angels everywhere. Um, That's true. So, so there's – oh, and and that goodwill I like spreading because uh, through sponsorships. So I have um, exchanges with some of the cultural institutions where I will put up performers or – um, oh, yeah. You know, and in exchange so th- with advertising with them. Um, and I sponsor events because it's always nice to have our banner hanging out. Like we'll be at Mayfair oh, and yeah. Harvard Square in Oktoberfest and the River Festival. So people have a good association with us. We give away water bottles with our name on them and cold water in them on a hot day in River Fest. <laughs> so, well, you know, and we that, kind of, that goes a long way, you know, oh, whenever yeah. you're the people that are – sometimes seen as the ones giving rather than taking, you know. Right. Well, you, I think the idea is that, that it's good to have a kind of a happy association with something people really care about, and they, then they think then they think of you more often. And they, Absolutely. So, and your name's um, in front of them because it's in their hand as they drink their water. Exactly. So. so for Irving House and even for your other properties, what type of performance metrics or performance indicators do you look at to measure your business, and why do you feel like those are important? Well, we track uh, the hospitality industry is, you know, the world's second oldest profession. It's extremely well known and tracked. <laughs> second oldest, <laughs> Which, but it does go hand in hand with the first oldest. Yeah, it kind of <laughs> does. <laughs> and and so the things you measure in a hotel are the occupancy and your average daily rate. So the average daily rate for every room you rent. And then those mm-hmm. combined create your um, room. Oh, my goodness, I just lost the acronym. REVPAR, your revenue per available room. Okay. So that's just what's, you know, what gives you an idea of the value of a hotel. How many rooms do you have? Mm-hmm. How much do you rent them for? What that's what you you know, so we track that every month. We actually mm-hmm. can track it by room, can track it by week, and da da da. You know, so I've got those records dating back to July of 1990. How much? Wow. How many rooms were rented in that month, and how much money did we make per wow. room? So, um, those have gone up and down. I can tell you, there were some bad years. In fact, the year we started was very bad. Oh, okay. And then 2001, starting in March, but certainly after September, right, was terrible. Yeah. And 2003 was bad. And then we've, you know, we've had a lot of heights. We for 10 years we just kept getting better and better and better and better. And I said, oh, this is the way the business goes. You just get better every year. We're we're making improvements, <laughs> and we're, people are finding out about us. And Easy. <laughs> so 2000 was a spectacular year. And then actually. Okay. Uh, we had trouble that everybody did in March of 2001, before September 11th. But, you know, um, we so I've measured those things, and I can look at those things over time. And um, mm-hmm. then we put ourselves in the, uh, the realm of our colleagues, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
who's adding hotel rooms or what you know what rates are they charging or they're offering specials or so we put out you know there's both our own history and then the community in which we operate and what hotels are opening what hotels are closing mm-hmm. so we're, we're pretty well aware of market things that you know it's a way of measuring both community well and I- I think it, you know, for you in particular in your business, I could see how there would be a fine line between trying to determine do we put money into improving or renovations or whatever to keep up with kind of the hotel trends or whatever's going on in the community because you know it's hard to compete with something that's brand new or Absolutely. or even newly renovated. Right. Um and then sometimes you you do that and you don't necessarily get a higher per night rate for <laughs> that. Depending on the do. year you chose to do it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, I can see that being just a real conundrum to try to figure out. It's a challenge. It is. Um, yes, the rooms have to look fresh and delightful, and there are new technologies coming in. For instance, with the, the what we've been doing to the rooms um, over the years has been adding more outlet. You know, we've been having to add more oh, electrical power yeah. and more substation and all that stuff, and um, central air conditioning we put in years ago, but you need better Wi-Fi, and we're fiddling with that, mm-hmm. and every time we make that better with a boosted signal and with this, with better delivery, of course, they demand more, so, yeah. <laughs> so we're constantly <laughs> behind the eight ball on the Wi-Fi, but yes, improvements, technological improvements, and then the fresh, groovy look of the room uh-huh. has changed. I mean, we've probably done three fairly significant redesign, not, re, you know, refurbishings. I, I hate that uh-huh. word, but that's really what it is when you kind of do it, you know, start from the ground and the floor up with new rugs, new paint, new curtains, new beds, mm-hmm. new furniture, new, you know, televisions, and new clock it, radios. And... Is it the kind of things where you, um, if you're going to do it to one room, you have to do it to all? I mean, you can't kind of go halfway with that? Well, you know, I didn't have a system for that back in the day. In the last renovation, we were much more, um, we closed off sections of the house more effectively because we could plan more. But when we first got the place back in 1990, we just had a worst first. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) Where there are springs coming through the mattresses. You know, that's where we start. It was bad. Um, (laughs) And then, you know, after I got like 10 rooms in some kind of decent shape where I could rent them and and I was still... Then you start, you kind of do shifts or something like that? Yeah, well, we would, in the winter, we could close a lot of rooms down. We could always, you know, we could strip the wallpaper and all that stuff. Um, But... One of the things that I tried to do early on, and my daughter being an adolescent at the time was really critical. But we made the common areas really, you know, as nice as we could. That's where we focused because I figured I could I could make a parlor. We could serve breakfast in there. And even if the rooms are kind of funky, <laughs> at least the common, you know, the parlor is nice. <laughs> and my daughter said, yeah, that's false advertising. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's all nice, so that's, that's much easier. But um, that, I was going to say, though, I know it probably you just want to enjoy it the minute it, it finally all gets done, knowing that it won't be too many years before you got to start all over. Oh, yeah. Again. Well, that's that's true. That absolutely is true. And now we're sitting in that sweet spot where it all yeah. looks kind of good. Maybe we, you know, maybe we're doing new bedspreads, but that's nothing compared to what we just went through a few years ago. So, yeah, um, we would expect that we'll need a new fresh, fresh approach. I don't know, a couple of years. 
it's it's horrendous. I mean, I don't know how much I really have to do. We've had we've added outlets and and you know Wi-Fi, the television wiring, all that stuff has been oh, the gosh, biggest mess. Yeah. That's the stuff that really is intrusive. I mean, just painting and new curtains and bedspreads. That's easy, you know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it's the it's really? the stuff where you got to really dig into the the walls and what's behind yeah. them. So I can understand yeah. that. Now, are you using social media very much in your business? And what yeah, are you doing well, with it? Well, we have a Twitter handle at Cambridge Inns, but I haven't been tweeting. I'm just not that. That's I just haven't gotten into it. Facebook, we have been using a little. I pay, I post here and there. I now have gotten to the point where I can blog on my website, and that will go straight to Facebook. Although I haven't really oh, been yeah. doing that much, so I'm trying to keep up with that. And my daughter is better at it. She does Instagram on Facebook with Harding House. Okay. Um, but the funny thing is, and actually we're we've, we're talking with two different people who want to offer us offer us some marketing packages. Um, we. Neither of us has training in in marketing at all, so we're uh-huh. looking for all kinds of assistance. But mostly, it's people who want to sell us a product. And I haven't seen that Facebook actually produces, or the social media in general, I should say, Pinterest and all of them, uh-huh. produces bookings for us. Okay. You know, okay. I can see something like I don't know, Groupon, or there's mm. a whole bunch of things that will get people into buy donuts or, you know. Have an appetizer on the house at a nice restaurant or something, but um, people are not booking rooms through social media connections that I have seen. I, I mean, maybe they're talking about us more. Maybe it's like the sponsorship; it's really mushy, so you can't. But Mm -hmm. you can't really measure it. Right, and that user engagement is hard to sometimes put a ROI on whenever you are talking about going and staying at a physical location. Exactly. So exactly. I can understand that as well. Um, we will, in the show notes, link up to all those places people can find you online too, though, so you don't have to um, worry about people trying to uh, not be able to find you. So we'll we'll link up to that. So, um, Great. Thanks. We'll, yeah, we'll put everything you have in there. <laughs> so, now, in the day-to-day running of your business, what's your favorite tool that you use? Um, a pen. I, <laughs> Are you a list person? Well, I certainly spend most of my time at the computer, and I I do all the bookkeeping. Well, I have an, okay. uh, my head of housekeeping also enjoys bookkeeping, and so she and I kind of share the responsibility. But I do a lot of emailing. I do a lot of work with spreadsheets. I do a lot of writing on the keyboard. But what I really like is writing notes to guests. Mm-hmm. So we have, you know, there's a little piece of paper in every room that says, how did you enjoy your stay? Do you have any suggestions? And a little kind of, you know, excellent good or, you know, excellent fair poor categories of, you know, how we served you. And if people write something down, you know, like the room was too cold or the Wi-Fi wasn't strong enough or uh-huh. you I want different muffins at breakfast or thank you for all the gluten-free options or I love the books. Can I keep my the book that I found in my room? I will write them a note, and I love doing that. It's, I typically do it on Fridays, and I get a stack of them, you know, between yeah. five and ten a week. And I handwrite a note. I choose a very black pen, and mm-hmm. I have – they're not long notes. They're just, you know, little notes. Mm-hmm. But I what believe it's, it's becoming a lost art, and I love it. Yes. And yeah, so 
I do it. You know, it's a it's a differentiation. I mean, it's one thing to have, you know, have an experience and give somebody feedback or fill out a survey or something like that, and at least even get a, you know, sometimes you're lucky if you get an auto response or right. something like that. Right. But to also have somebody sit down, the owner sit down and, you know, put pen to paper and in their own handwriting address whatever the concern is, I mean, that you're truly correct in saying that is a lost art because nobody does that anymore well, i'm so. hoping it's not lost and i'm hoping the post office stays alive because I bring it back fun. right <laughs> <laughs> old school that's that's great though because that's the kind of connection and touch points that do get lost in the the digital age that we're in so i i mean i love that i think that's great and especially when you have um a business that is such uh, historical icon or has the historical context, it it kind of goes right along with with what your business is. I mean, to me, it it fits very yeah, well. Yeah. So, um, Rachel, one of the things I love to talk to business owners about and try to give uh, some direction to people that might be looking for a niche of something to start locally is I like to find out what you as a business owner have experienced as holes in the market um, in your area. In other words, are there products and services that you would love to be able to source locally in your area, but you simply cannot find them? Mm. Wow. <laughs> really good croissant. That well, we want to try to give happy. people, you know, some ideas. And if we eventually, you know, if I had a whole bunch of people say the same thing over and over again, uh, obviously that idea would be validated. Yeah. But it's different in different areas in it the market. Is. And I so. shouldn't say I shouldn't say croissant because there are places that make them, but they just don't wholesale them. And that's what okay, I need. So but we get a, we get excellent scones, we get excellent muffins, we get excellent breads, but a really good croissant in the morning. We don't we can't make ourselves, and we have not been able to get something that really does a trick for me. So, is is it something about that that's particularly difficult? Oh yeah, the they're very hard make, to make. They're hard to make. Oh okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, Parisians would say Americans just don't know how to do it. We don't know. The British say we don't know how to make tea. The French say we don't know how to make croissant. Right. So, well, interesting. But um, I let me see. There, well, there's a lot of things actually. You know, one of the things I'm looking for, um, we're a green hotel. We're you know being as environmentally okay. light as we can, mm-hmm. in many ways of our operations. And I like as you as I noted before when you asked about uh, word of mouth and the goodwill. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of goodies that we give away. Little notebooks and the water bottles and sippy cups and mugs mm-hmm. and pens and oh gosh, whatever wonderful little thing I can think. Beach balls for the kids, umbrellas, okay. you know. <laughs> yeah. But I'm I would like things that are that are very good quality that are made more with recycled materials. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Because I I think there needs to be more of a market for the materials that we're now attempting to recycle in a very orderly way. And I want to be able to buy them and have them in my business. And I have not been able to find a really good source of those. That's, you know. You know, that's true because so so much of what you're talking about is probably coming directly from overseas. Um, well, I certainly would like it to be made in the U.S. and if possible, absolutely. T-shirts yeah. and you know, I, I uh, fleece. Actually, I did find yeah. a decent place for fleece, but uh, bags, you know, canvas bags, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Yes, um, they, most of it is made overseas, and I would rather be buying it from the U.S. 
and I'm Absolutely. sure that we have. It's I haven't seen it put together in one place nicely. You know, there's yes. there, there'd be some green, eco-friendly products, and and there's just not enough variety and not enough. I don't know, I just right, and it, I was going to say, if you want more than one option, you might be out of luck sometimes right. with certain places. So no, that's a very good idea, and that's that's something that um, we know that the market can the market is out there for those types of products, sure. you know, just in any kind of industry. But you're right, in the hotel and hospitality industry, it just it would make sense for somebody to mm-hmm. to kind of uh, aggregate all of those things and put them together nicely, like you say. So now, as a uh, parting piece of wisdom, can you share one main overarching theme or something that you would have uh, to share with somebody that maybe you you know now that you wish you would have known whenever you started? What was your main business wisdom you can share? Sorry. Uh, Well, if you keep your feet on the ground, the sky is the limit. And I think your feet feet on the ground are are your... um, your practice is being sustainable, and I mean sustainable financially and legally mm-hmm. and with your employees and with your community and with the environment. There's all kinds of sustainability. So whatever you're doing, if you build something that you imagine that you see in all ways with, you know, with the forces of the marketplace and the weather and things being what they are, if you attempt to be sustainable, honestly, you know, urgently. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh huh. Then the sky's the limit. Excellent. Well, you know, um, you have been extremely generous with giving us some real nitty gritty type business practices that people can actually take and use. And um, I wanted to give you the opportunity to promote anything about your business that you wanted to um, to our listeners, because I'm sure there are going to be plenty that will. Uh, come through your area and that sort of thing. So what can we give you the opportunity to promote? Uh, well, our motto is Friendly Accommodations in the Heart of Cambridge. Oh. Uh, we have Irving House and Harding House. We also have a long-term stay place called Turner House when you're coming here for more than two weeks. And, wow. and we're right in the neighborhoods of mid-Cambridge, and we love what we do and we look forward to seeing you if your travels bring you to our fair city well and i will definitely link up to um your website on that so people can get online and check it out because i know um it you know when you're traveling and that sort of thing i mean one of the first things i know i do is i start looking for the local places to stay the local places to eat the local places to shop because even if i'm not in my local city i want to support the local um, business in community wherever I am. So I definitely will hook up and link up to that. Great. And um, all the places we can find you online, we've got your website. Yep. Uh, you've got Facebook and Twitter. Anywhere else we can find you online? Um, you've got Irving House, and then you said Turner House. Well, Irving House in- includes Turner House, and the other includes, property okay. is called uh, Harding House. Harding-house.com is the website for Harding House. If you go to the Irving House website, you'll be able to find a link to it at the bottom of every page. So you can always find Harding House through Irving House. Perfect. 
Well, I will definitely link up with that. And um, I, I can't thank you enough for the amount of time you spent with us today and the, the generosity with the wisdom that you've shared and the uh, kind of a little peek behind your business. And um, we're glad that you've gotten to the point where it's not the chaos it used to be 24 years ago. I mean, that, that's yeah. accomplishment right there, being in business for 24 <laughs> years and sticking with it. So um, thank you so much for your time and for your um you know, the, just the the willingness to share and the fact that you have come on and just wanted to help promote local businesses um, and, and help support local business owners in what you do every single day. So it's been a pleasure talking to you, and um, I would love to come back at some point in time in the future and get an update. When you, when you add another property on and do all those new things, we'll definitely have to do it again. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And, and certainly uh, spending time in local places is just more fun. Localist, I need your help. If you've appreciated this podcast today, I need you to go to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review, tell us what you think about the podcast. It is so important for us to expand our reach to be able to have those iTunes ratings and reviews. That way, other people can find us much easier whenever they're looking for things about local brick and mortar businesses. So go to iTunes, leave us a review, leave us a rating. You cannot imagine how important it is to us. You can find show notes to everything we discussed in this podcast on our website. So go there. It's www.brickandmortarreporter.com. You can see all the links to anything we discussed. And also you can leave us any comments or any questions that you have. It's the best way to get in touch with us. Thank you for listening to the Brick and Mortar Reporter Podcast, where we build businesses all day long with no permits. Remember, local businesses are the backbone of our economy. So, whenever you have the opportunity, choose local.